Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we speak with Helen Raleigh on her new book, Backlash, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. This book sets out to provide a comprehensive overview of China's domestic and international aggressions and how they overplayed their hand. We discuss China's actions in the South China Sea, their cultural tyranny with their social credit system, oppressive international trade, and their handling of the COVID-19 outbreak. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. I'm joined today by Helen Raleigh. Helen is the author of several books and a senior contributor to The Federalist. She has published numerous columns about China, immigration, international affairs, and the free market economics. Her writings also appeared in The Wall Street Journal, Fox News, National Review, and other national media. Helen, welcome back to Acton Line. Thank you guys for having me again. So Helen, you, you are the author of Backlash, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. I'm going to provide a link in the show notes so our listeners can check the book out. But before we get into the book, I want to ask you a quick question. So you were born and raised in communist China. So you have firsthand experience of the cultural and political changes, the the socialist experiments that millions of Chinese people had to endure, including your family. What is one childhood experience that changed your life from those experiments? I actually wrote a book about it. That was my first book. It's, it was called Confucius Never Said. Um, people can find it on Amazon. But one story that I remember really clearly, and I wrote it in my book also, was um, I grew up with food rations. So the way food ration was distributed is, was based on gender. The same age boy would get four more pound rice each month than a girl because there was a widespread food shortage. Um, but because my name was a a popular boy's name in China. So the bureaucracy mistaken that I was a boy. So they allocated me the food ration meant for a boy. Hmm. Even with those extra food ration, I was still hungry all the time. I used to dream about the food all the time. Um, my childhood dream, biggest dream, uh, wish was to, you know, to eat as much as I could. Um, so, um, but of course, you know, Later, when I grew up a little bit older, that one day um, police came to our house just to do a random check. They did not need a warrant to do that. They just checked to make sure everybody in the household were people supposed to be in the household. And of course, he compared our paperwork and he looked at me. He realized the government made a mistake that I was a girl. So I was not supposed to have the food ration meant for a boy. Instead of admitting the government made a mistake, he accused our family of cheating. Um, and he demanded our family to pay the government back. So, you know, we were all on food stamp back then. So our family had to go on further diet in order to save enough food stamp to pay the government back. And that was a really um, my first uh, awakening um, you know, from that experience, I ask myself, you know, why can't I decide how much I should be able to eat, you know, and why does a girl has to eat, you know, have to eat less than a boy, you know, who gets to decide that? 
And so, of course, you know, those are some very simple ideas, simple questions back then. But I think that experience and the questions I ask myself, you know, eventually lead to led me to where I am now. Were you forced to be on food stamps? Yes. So in China, the way they distributed the food ration was through food stamps. So it's not because you're poor. You know, we we're all poor back then. But you, 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 you have to buy, you have to buy food with food stamp. Food stamp limit how much food you could buy. So even if you had money, but if you didn't have the food stamp, you couldn't buy food. So this book seems to be a, a one-stop shop of everything that's happening in China. What motivated you to write this book? Well, a couple of reasons. One, I wrote this book last year, like everybody else. I simply had time because we all get stuck at home. We couldn't go anywhere. And the second, I was frustrated that uh, even though there's so much information out there about China, there's still, especially from the policymaker standpoint, there's still so much misunderstanding about the Communist Party, what's the true nature of the Communist Party, and what's the best way to deal with the CCP. So I think it's important that, that to write a book to touch on all the most current urgent issues from China's domestic issues to its uh, you know, international relations with other countries, especially the great power competition between China and the US, but also put those issues in historical context, explain how did we get here? And based on what we could learn from history, how we should move forward to, you know, to address uh, the communist China. Absolutely. Now, what are China's aggressions? So first half of the book is were about China's aggressions. It's like, I, I always describe it, it's like how I construct an onion. You know, the first layer is actually what's happened domestically. Hmm. So I covered the issue of how Chinese communists persecute the Uyghurs and the, the Christian, the, the growing uh, Christian movement, um, as well as the mass uh, surveillance system. So China today is a digital totalitarianism. It's basically the country is rich and powerful enough. It was able to use technology to monitor, uh, you know, the government serve as a big brother to monitor every citizen's move and the behavior. Um, so that's the domestic aggression. Then the second layer, then I touched down issues near China's border and the crackdown in Hong Kong, um, as, as well as his, uh, how China uh, basically uh, what's happening with the South China Sea. And I, I honestly believe that South China Sea is one of the most misunderstood areas, um, but it's also the most one of the most challenging areas. If the United States and the, uh, China will ever go to a war, I think the South China Sea is a very likely place that that will happen. So I think it's important for people to understand, you know, what's that issue and challenge is about. So that's the second layer. And the third layer is probably more related to audience here in the United States and in the West. The third layer is talking about how China's aggression uh, in Western you know, democracies, how, how it is spread, its influence, as well as the misinformation and the propagandas uh, meddling in other countries, for example, Australia. Australia currently is a classic example of how uh, economic relationship with China uh, has been weaponized by China to, to use that economic power now try to force Australia to bend its democracy to fit the Communist Party's needs. And so that's a that, that, that's a warning you know, there. Of course, all this are wrapped up by the coronavirus, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And to me, that's really um, 
everything connected to, to this because we now have enough evidence. We know that um, had had the Chinese government uh, had had not uh, suppressed um, early, you know, whistleblowers, had they come, uh, you know, clean earlier and be transparent about this this virus, is a controllable outbreak. It shouldn't become a worldwide pandemic. So now this 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 uh. Uh, pandemic really became a, a wake-up call for a lot of uh, people and the governments that what's happening inside China can become something affected all of our health and safety, uh, you know, in, in a matter of weeks. So let's go back to the first layer. You were talking about how China is essentially a, a digital tyranny. Are, are you referring to the Chinese social credit system? Mm-hmm. What is that and, and how does that work? I included a social credit system, but the social credit system is really just one piece of that digital tyranny. Okay. So the digital tyranny includes uh, many things, including like a face, uh, face, facial recognition cameras everywhere. China currently has over 600 million facial recognition cameras installed throughout the country. So it will, even if you wear your wear a mask, the, the uh, cameras can recognize who you are immediately. And um, there's also big data. So all China's big tech firms like Alibaba and Tencent, you know, the company behind the message app WeChat, they collect the data of, you know, what do you communicate online, what's your shopping behaviors, and they share those information with, uh, with the government. And the social credit system is basically a gathering of this um, this massive amount of data from the cameras, from the your internet behaviors, you know, your other records, and then give it collected thousands of data points, and then it com- compute a score. Here, we understand the credit is about whether you pay your bill on time, uh, do you have the ability to pay. But in China, it the, that is much more expensive. It's including things as innocent as. Did you leave the trash out in you know, outside your door in the right way? Did you cross the street? Did, did you run a uh, red light? But it also included, you know, did, did you say anything bad about the Communist Party? And there's also very strict uh, rewards and the punishment system. So basically, the government wants to mold you into uh, model citizens, the kind of citizens they want. So some of the reward could be if you behave as the big brother want you to, wants you to behave, then you may be easily get a promotion. Your kids may have access to better school. Um, you, 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 you may get a low, lower loan rate when you go to the bank to borrow a mortgage. But on the other side of it, you know, if you're considered behave poorly, um, you're not be able to travel. You could not buy, you know, airline ticket. You could not buy train ticket. Um, you know, you may not get a promotion, and you may not get a. You may get a high rate if you go to the bank, or you may not be able to borrow money at all. And now China just rolled out a digital currency. Uh, basically, it will allow the government to see where you buy uh, what and how much did you spend? And they also will be able to use that to enhance the social security uh, systems reward and the punishment mechanism. So if you behave poorly, even if you refuse to pay the fine, they could directly go into your bank and pull money out through the digital currency. So you basically have no choice. You are under a tight control. Let's transition to the second layer. You're telling me about Taiwan and the South China Sea. What's what's the aggression that's happening there? So, well, that's 
Let's, let's talk about South China Sea first, because okay. I think that's that's where the most important. Uh, it's really just happened right in front of our eyes. So when the president uh, Obama was elected in his first term, it happened to be when the China's current leader Xi. It also happened to be the uh, same time that he came into power, and. He initially was worried about President Obama's uh, pivot to Asia policy. He he thought the United States tried to circle, in, you know, um, with allies circling counter, you know, China's growth. But it turned out that uh, President Obama was very eager to get China's support for the Paris uh, climate change agreement. So President Obama had no interest to really, you know, contain China. So she always believed that uh, in order for China to become a world power, China needs to develop its naval power. And so he began to um, expand in South China. South China Sea is this area that China shared, historically shared with a number of countries, including the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia. So the number of countries, and the Taiwan's there too, number of countries shared the usage of South China Sea. It's one of the most important trade ports, I mean, trade um, route. It's also rich in oil and the mineral and the natural deposit and also fishery. Mm. So it has economic importance as well as strategic you know, uh, importance. And so she started to build this artificial island on South China Sea. And he built one to see what the, you know, President Obama, what the United States is going to react. United States didn't react, they did nothing. So he was emboldened that he started building more and more islands. So basically between 2012 to 2015, China was able to uh, reclaim over 3,000 acres of artificial land on South China Sea. And by then, and those artificial lands all, you know, all became militarized. So they have military runways, they have radars. And so they basically increased China's presence in that, in that one of the most important strategic water on this whole planet. So by doing that, China was able to control over 90% of South China Sea. And basically China basically has this attitude that um, if you build it, it's mine. So now they're claiming any ships going to so-called, uh, you know, uh, Chinese controlled areas, then you're invading their, you know, sovereignty. And that's created a challenge for, for the United States because a number of countries, you know, also share competing claims of the South China Sea. And then now, you know, like a Vietnamese fishermen, Philippine fishermen couldn't even fish in their own water. And they couldn't try to do oil discovery exploration in their own water because now China claims it's theirs. And, the, and the both Vietnam and the Philippines are the U, are US allies. And also now that we're talking about Taiwan, Taiwan also has claims with South, you know, in South China Sea. And so part of the reason we believe that um, the government want the, the Chinese government wanted to control the South China Sea is to make it easier for its military takeover of Taiwan. Um, because when it has uh, so many islands that are militarized, that uh, if the United States is going to intervene before they even reach the reach Taiwan, and you know it has to cross all this, has to pass all those you know artificial islands, it will be stopped. But at least the, at least the Chinese Navy will try to stop the U.S. Navy from going there. And the last couple of years, the U.S. Navy and the Chinese Navy had several very very close encounters. 
um, the U.S. Navy reported that Chinese Navy has become really, really aggressive. Um, their ships getting really, really close to the U.S. Navy ships. So if an accident happened on the high sea, um, we could see a cold war between the two countries uh, become a uh, hot war. It makes sense uh, when you write in the book how the CCP, they believe in the law of the jungle after what you've described with the South China Sea. So I want to go back to um, the, the mishandling of, of, the, of the coronavirus. How did the CCP mishandle the coronavirus and how did the United States intervene? As I have a whole chapter in my book about the coronavirus. Initially, there were several Chinese doctors thought it was uh, SARS. It was repeat of SARS. And they immediately notified the Chinese uh, healthcare uh, authorities. The healthcare authorities um, did not report to WHO immediately. And the WHO first find out when the local news in, in China, in Wuhan, reported some kind of mysterious pneumonia. They called it a pneumonia that came out. So WHO demanded China for information. Um, and WHO is very was very much compromised. So they didn't, you know, they didn't press China hard enough. And China basically put on this stone wall to say there's really not much going on. Um, you know, you don't need to worry about it. At the same time, uh, those uh, doctors who post the messages on the internet, they were arrested. They were made to confess that they spread rumors and they need to just be, you know, silenced and shut up. They promised not to do it again. So the Chinese government did not notify, you know, the general public, neither the WHO about this mysterious uh, virus. But at the same time, there were investigation going on. I have a timeline in my book. So very soon, the Chinese government recognized that it's a serious you know, a virus and needs to take action. Um, so they've been taking serious actions such as, you know, uh, increased procurement of uh, PPEs, the protective uh, uh, gears, you know, around the world, like uh, masks and uh, ventilators. And they also, uh, starting to cutting back travels, in, in domestic travels. But while, we, while they're doing all this, they did not share those informations um, with the rest of the world. So people outside the world still didn't know anything about it. And um, uh, the Chinese uh, tourists were still allowed to traveling outside of China during that whole period, while domestically China's taking all kinds of uh, actions because the Chinese doctors or uh, Chinese uh, genetics was able to decode the DNA of this virus actually rather quickly. And they warned the government it's very likely it's highly contagious. Um, again, Chinese government took actions, but they did not share those information with the with, with the rest of the world. So most of us saw this, this is something, you know, just happening in Wuhan, nothing else, you know, going on. And Chinese people were able to travel around the world, basically became the super spreaders, you know, take this to the rest of the world. And so the Southern Hamilton University did a study. Um, the basically the study shows that the the first three weeks of any outbreak is the most crucial time, you know, to deal with any contagious, you know, contagious disease. So basically the Southern Hampton University study said, uh, revealed that uh, if China was able to disclose about this uh, virus three weeks in advance, the outbreak could be contained, could be reduced by 90%, nine zero. 
So basically, like I said, it was not going to be a pandemic. It was going to be a controllable outbreak. But because the Chinese government's, you know, the control, the lack of transparency, and uh, the eager suppressing of dissenting voices, you know, all these actions together, uh, basically explode this uh, controllable outbreak into a global pandemic. Now, you know, now we all suffer. Um, I don't know if there's much for United States to do at at this point. Um, regarding to the virus, other than you know we you know we have vaccines out there and we seems to picking up on addressing the you know containing the spreading of the virus and our economy is going back up and so so the really the, the competing area we have right now with China is uh, about the information right you know, China the government the Chinese government now is spreading misinformation about. Where did how did the virus you know where did the virus started? Now they blame foreign frozen food, and the, the WHO investigation team signed on that idea. Um, so the United States and the rest of rest of the world needs to fight back for those misinformation and really investigate the origin of the virus and how can we prevent something similar from happening again. So let's talk about the backlash that China is is experiencing now. Can you comment on that? Sure. So the second half of the book was really about the backlash. Um, as I mentioned earlier, that the coronavirus, the whole pandemic, uh, and what's happening in Hong Kong, seeing how a freest city in the world falling apart, you know, there it's a pro-democracy move has been crushed right in front of our eyes. You know, those two events have become wake-up event for a lot of people around the world. So, so the backlash against uh, the Chinese Communist Party uh, reflecting several. Uh, Areas. One is public opinion. So both last year as well as this year, Pew Research did a did the surveys around the world. Basically, the um, the public opinion of a communist China, especially communist China's leader, has dropped to historical low. Um, people do not trust, you know, communist China and especially its leaders has handled the coronavirus outbreak really well. So so there's a public opinion backlash. And there's, there's also uh, in terms of uh, backlash, in terms of actions. So um, the Trump administration, the former uh, uh, U.S. administration, the Trump administration took several actions that haven't hasn't been done before by any government, neither by any of the previous administration. So, for example, they targeted the senior CCP officials, sanction targeted sanctioning C- senior CCP officials, and uh, they banned uh, exporting of certain sensitive technologies. You know, to China, they also um, put several Chinese companies on a blacklist um, because their relationship is with the Chinese military. The the leadership from the Trump administration actually inspired, encouraged some of our allies to take similar actions. So, for example, uh, let's use the telecom Huawei as example. So, Huawei is a uh, telecom giant. And it's one of China's uh, Chinese government's national champion. And the Chinese government tried to push Huawei to go build a 5G network around the world. And but the United States always have 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 long cons- has long concerned about the data security with a Chinese company. So the Trump administration um, tried to persuade its strategic allies, especially the allies in the Five Eyes, you know, like UK, Canada. Australia, New Zealand, you know, not to use uh, Huawei to build 5Gs because we share intelligence with all those other countries and it's not safe. Um, United Kingdom, surprisingly, even though it has been one of our closest allies, United Kingdom insistently, 
insists it has to push forward. You know, Boris Johnson said it has to push forward using Huawei because Huawei's bid is the, you know was the cheapest. Um, so, so even after a former Secretary Pompeo made this threat, say we're going to stop sharing, United States will stop will stop sharing intelligence with you if you use Huawei to build 5G, and Boris Johnson was going to go ahead, and then. Coronavirus, you know, the the, the COVID nineteen out uh, pandemic happened, and so that has become a become a wake up event for the United Kingdom. So May last year, uh, in the middle of the coronavirus, that uh, the United Kingdom announced that it's actually dropped Huawei from uh, its five G network, you know, uh, vendors, and this caused a huge, uh, you know. Outrage from the Chinese government. They all, they even threatened to uh, to uh, penalizing UK Bank in Hong Kong, you know, to to punish United Kingdom for doing such thing. But still, that's just one example of how you see there's a backlash um, pushing back on China's aggression. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to turn our attention to the United States. In the book you wrote, a really interesting quote. When I write about culture and politics in the United States nowadays, I find myself often reaching back to China's history, as well as my personal experiences as warnings to American readers. Uh, What are these warning signs and what are we as Westerners not understanding about China? (laughs) That's a very interesting question. Um, It's really unfortunate. I think the um, the rising socialism movement here uh, the rising wokeism, um, you know, the cancel the cancel culture, all of this reminded me of the uh, of the intolerant and the brutal, um, you know, class struggle happened in during China's Cultural Revolution. You know, I see more and more similarities between what's happening in the United States uh, versus what happened in China several decades ago. So when you were younger, you experienced "quote unquote" wokeism and cancel culture. So this is not new then. Yeah, but it, it was not called called a wokeism, you know, back then. But yes, right. it was to me wokeism, uh, cancel culture. They are a reflection of a Marxist movement. It, you know, it's it's about you know they cancel i they uh, cancel ideas, cancel people who are willing to have a different voices and burn books. And you know they, they torn down statues and they destroy you know Asian cultures and they pit people against each other on things they had no control of. You know back in Cultural Revolution is based on class, right? If your family was classified as a, um, a landowners, then you know all your sons and uh, grandsons are you know or descend- descendants of the landowners. You need supposed to be condemned. I mean those you know we have no choice what family we, class we're born into. And now you see seems similar things happen here, you know, but it, it, it's it, instead of class struggle, now we see, you know, based on race, you know, the, the left try to separate us based on race. Just if you're born a certain race, if your skin color is a certain way, then you are you are always uh, oppressor and everybody else is always, the, you know, being oppressed. So they basically divide people into categories that uh, none of us has an ability to change. And that will lead to conflict and a division. And in China's case, you know, it's leads to a blood violence. We're not there yet, but I, you know, just based on some comments I'm reading on Twitter uh, and on Facebook, I'm thinking that we're, we're going that direction. That's very worrisome. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems almost as if this this desire to pursue democratic socialism 
which I don't even think is I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Democratic socialism. It's oxymoron. But, <laughs> absolutely. And I, I hate to say the term slippery slope, but from what you said, it seems as if democratic socialism kind of leads to communism. Well, definitely, because um, according to Karl Marx, you know, first of all, there's no such thing as a democratic socialism. So, you know, socialism is socialism. You know, right. just because they try to put a lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig. You know, that's not mistaken what it is. And socialism is a prelude of communism. And both socialism and communism, they're just different shades of evil. They are all about control. That's why we see, you know, the growing socialism movement working hand in hand with this cancel culture, this wokeism, because they're all rooted, uh, you know, the root cause is always about control. It's always about power. It's always about how to how to suppress other people to do what I want them to do. You know, so, so you only one type of thoughts is allowed. Only one type of ideas is allowed. Anything else, you know, needs to be condemned. And you you see that you know trajectory, and that that's why you know I really want to leave this to American people. You know, through this podcast and my book is. Um, you know, for people like me, we, we've seen this before. So so don't mistaken somehow, you know, if you agree to cancel a few books or if you agree that a few statues not important, if you agree to the vocal mobs, like, you know, well, some historic figures are, you know, controversial, so let's condemn them. Remember, that's not their end goal. Their end goal is never about a few books, a few statues, a few historical figures. Their end goal is a total destruction of this, you know, liberal society that the classical liberal society that we have. They disagree with our values. They disagree with our founding principles. They want to seek a total destruction. They call this old world, which I see, you know, in China's Cultural Revolution, same thing. It was old world. They want to totally destroy it so they can build an ideologically purified new world. So that's why we're going to see if we don't do anything, the cancel culture is only going to get worse. It's not going to stop. We already see, you know, from tearing down Confederacy statues now, tearing down Lincoln statues, tearing down Washington statues, and it's not going to stop there. It's going to get worse. Last question, Helen. Now with the Biden administration, our relationship with China seems to be entirely different from when we had the former Trump administration. So from your perspective, what does the future of China look like and especially our relationship with them? Well, the future may come very near to us. It really depends on how the Biden administration will act. Uh, I am deeply concerned. The person I concern the most in the Biden administration is John Kerry. Um, John Kerry is a fervent believer of uh, climate change. He will do anything for climate change. He's already made it known that he thinks climate change is the biggest challenge for the United States and for the rest of the uh, world. And he's willing to do anything to get China on board to somehow cooperating in the climate change you know, initiative. And so that to me is deeply concerning that uh, how much he's willing to, uh, willing to give. I mean, there are some positive signs in the Biden administration. Um, for example, they continued certain uh, Trump administration's policies such as uh, the sanction against uh, certain Chinese entities. They announced today that they blacklist some uh, Chinese supercomputer firms um, 
because they share the sensitive technology that was Chinese military. So, so there are certain uh, continuity in the policy, but at the same time, the overall, um, my biggest concern is the overall foreign policy approach from the uh, Biden administration is about appeasement. You see, you, you see the, the way they treated the Iran, the way they treated the, you know, China, the way they treated you know, uh, other US adversaries. Seems like they're more concerned about uh, how do we get along rather than do, doing what is right and despite the cost, doing what is right. So for example, um, China's, uh, uh, Chinese Navy is harassing Taiwan every day. It's become a daily occurrence now. You know, Chinese bombers fly into Taiwan's airspace every day. So sooner or later, you know, Taiwan is exhausted, you know, give up. And even China militarily overtaken Taiwan. And I'm afraid that China, the Biden administration probably will not do anything to intervene. And if that happens, then the world order basically is going to be uh, rewritten. And, you know, this, this liberal world order the United States has led since the World War II will totally crumbling, will fall apart. And we're gonna to have to live in a new world order that established by the, Com the Communist Party of China. Helen Raleigh is a senior contributor to The Federalist and author of Backlash, How China's Aggression Has Backfired. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. As always, Thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline. I'm Gabriel Jaja.